0: Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents, Matt Stevens Unplugged, live. Yes, live. Yes, this is the first episode that we've ever recorded in front of our very own live audience. The venue was the Sigma Sports Electric Store in Kingston and the guest was none other than Sir Chris Hoy. Now, what can I tell you about Chris? Well, he is... Quite simply, a ridiculously, yes, a ridiculously nice man, which you probably, if you've met him, already know, or even seen him on the television, um, all polite and everything. Um, He's got massive arms, although that wasn't actually written down, but we have to talk a little bit about his arms because they are quite big, and I was ever so slightly intimidated. He is a track cycling legend, 11 times a world champion, and six times an Olympic champion. And at one point, he was Britain's most decorated Olympian, with six gold medals and a silver, but alas, no bronzes. Stay tuned to find out how he feels about that. He's a proud Scotsman who hails from the Murrayfield era of Edinburgh. Find out how well he knows Murrayfield in the Murrayfield quiz. That's the most Murrayfields anybody has ever said in a single sentence, Murrayfield. We talk all about training and how he'd push himself so hard that he'd need a crash mat and vomit buckets, yes. Now these days he's a very busy chap indeed with lots of interesting irons in the fire and we chat about some of those irons, the ones we're allowed to anyway, because there's also some top secret irons in the fire as well. We also talk about parenthood and Chris has a great outlook on helping your kids find their passion but does it have to be cycling for the whole younglings? Find out on this very podcast. And since we had the company of a really lovely live audience, we opened the floor to your questions too, and we did get some really cool ones. So stop your current interval before you need the vomit bucket, crash onto the aforementioned mat, and take it easy in the company of one of cycling's true gentlemen for the next hour and 20 odd minutes, because this, is the Chris Hoy episode? You no, know, it's that time again. Man steals a flood. Podcast. Chris Hoy grew up in Edinburgh, where he tried all disciplines of bike riding before coming to the conclusion that track sprinting was his true calling. It suited him genetically, and his attitude to hard work and dedication led him to become one of the biggest names in the world and a knighthood for his services to sports. In fact, he's still the second most decorated British Olympic cyclist. He joined me at the Sigma Sports Electric Store in Kingston-upon-Thames, where he was promoting a new business venture called Scarpa, a very handy solution for turning any disc brake bike into an electric bike. But what were his peak power numbers in his sprinting days? Who was his cycling hero? Just how did he get into motorsport? And where's the nearest Greg's Bakery to his hometown of Murrayfield? There's only one way to find out, folks. Check it out. Okay, well, the seating arrangement's sorted. Mm -hmm. Uh, First and foremost... Chris. Thanks for coming.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Is this a bit close? Does that feel a bit? No, I quite like it. You I quite it? like so, okay. the unease. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't, I yeah. mean. Physical proximity is, is my favorite thing. Oh, so we yeah, could it's great. start. Well, did, uh, did, yeah. Okay. I think it's fine. Yeah. But maybe a little bit further away. I'm, I'm regretting bringing it up now. Sorry. No,
0: no. It's uh, sorry. I'm just trying to get. Cancer. Anyway, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great to be here. And
1: it's the, I'm honored to be the first guest of your, your first ever live podcast. So Thank you for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. It's an honour. And we've done a few bits
0: and bobs before, but nothing ever quite like this and nothing ever recorded in such a cool venue. And this is is a wonderful space as well. So also, thank you to everybody for coming along, trying the Scarpa stuff. For many of you, it might be the first time you've ever been to our e-store as well, our e-bike store. Um, And also, thanks for most of you for bunking off work as well, because it's technically in work time. So, but do bear in mind this will go onto the internet. And so your bosses will probably hear it at some point. Uh, so just wanted it's to get that. It's getting bit. in trouble so for, if isn't you, it, though? If, if you want to leave now, please do. But uh, the other thing I need to do as well, first off, because this is a podcast, you can see it. So this is a visual podcast for many of you. But for the people at home listening to this at a later date, they won't be able to see anything. So Chris, if you wouldn't mind describing the scene around us, and what you can see, what you can feel,
1: well, and maybe not me, I'm quite close. But Yeah, well, we're oh. in Sigma Sports Electric Store. That's, that's what you call it, isn't it? That's the f- official title. Um, first time I've been here, it's, it's a fantastic setup. There's e-bikes hanging from the ceiling. It's all very cool interior. There's bikes everywhere. It makes you want to spend money, basically. We're sitting in a room full of people. There's about, what, five or 600 here, would you say? Six
0: I mean, you can just hear by,
1: yeah, by the, the yeah, roar uh, from Easily. the crowd, deafening um, roar. It's packed out, and they're all looking at like it. They've got some great questions. Um, there's the Scarper team here. Where later we can talk about the Scarper unit later on. Obviously, that's that's the exciting thing we're involved with. And I'm sitting next to Matt Stevens. Unplugged? And it's all very exciting. I just had a water pass to me. Thank you very much.
0: You set the scene very well, there. You're Cheers. also wearing quite... Uh, you're on brand for Scarper as well. Brand, you've got a yes. lovely T-shirt on with quite nice tipping to it as well, like a t-shirt with good quality tipping. Um, the tipping What's is a little the bit at the edge ah, with the little stripes. You learned something new in this. You it's do. Like educational yeah, You, you do. Yeah. yeah, so we've set the scene. I don't think we need to further describe it. As Chris suggested there, oh, by the way, this is the first time I've ever seen a pod pod. So this pod is recording the pod. And that's it, completely nicely wireless. Hopefully it'll work. Um, Thanks very much indeed for the tech. I thought it was funny when we had the meeting about this live pod, uh, Dan, where Mr. Dan Cogan said, said to the chaps who were going to set it up, do you need a van? <laughs> I mean, I don't, did, did you, you didn't need a van, did you? No. Um, okay. Right. Chris, how the devil are you, mate? What have you been up to of late? I'm very we well. Do a
1: deep dive. Yeah, it's been busy. Um, I've just been up to, just back from Edinburgh and Glasgow. I was in. I can't talk about it too much, but I've got a quite exciting adventure project coming up, which is, I'll give you a little teaser. It's basically, I'm cycling. Um, it involves a distillery uh, called Talisker. Okay, I, right. we did a, we did a, I could tell you about what we did earlier on in the year. I we went up to, to, to Sky, to the Talisker distillery, and I raced Ross Edgley, who is an adventure swimmer, does long-distance swimming. He's swimming the entire coastline of the UK. Why? Why Well, exactly. I guess he's got nothing else to do, but... Um, yeah, basically un- non-stop. So he basically never set foot on land, slept in a boat, get back out, swim, sleep in a boat, did the full coastline of the UK. Took him months to do it. <laughs> set a world record. record. Um, he looks like the Incredible Hulk, so he doesn't look like a traditional swimmer. He's massive. Okay, um, he's like the swimming equivalent of you. Well, he's big, way bigger than me, but it's top heavy. He's got that's massive arms, and yeah, okay. you check out. He's got about a million followers on Instagram. Big, right. big name in the virtual world, and. Um, settle these world records. So they had a challenge where he had to swim across the loch next to the, the Talisker distillery, and I had to cycle around it, and it was a race. And it was all about raising awareness for ocean conservation, Talisker. They, they partner with Parley for the Seas and raising awareness about the fact that there's basically the, the Kelpie forests are, are dying at a faster rate than um, the, the rainforest. So it's you know something that we need to talk about more. So anyway, I was involved with that and it's something i can't tell you what it's about but it's something along those lines an adventure race that i'm doing the cycling part of and a couple of big names that you will all have heard of so we're doing a bit of a recce for that in edinburgh that's all i can tell you it's um, quite so, a lot actually yeah, I've given, i mean i basically That's basically
0: the show <laughs> uh, really so you don't need to watch it uh, that's basically that was more than so, That was
1: quite a deep yeah, synopsis thanks. that was that was a long story um yeah long story short apart from that doing LeBlanc this weekend race yep. uh, riding up at Loch Lomond in Scotland. We've got Nathan Outlaw, amazing chef, doing all the cooking. Um, we're doing the writing. You're going to be there too. Yeah, there's a lot of uh,
0: Chris Hoy and Matt Stevens this week yeah. uh, amongst us two, isn't there really? There is. Yeah. yeah. Are you? Uh, I'll uh, save are all the it? good stuff for them. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So if it gets a bit strained uh, today, just step in. Uh, but hopefully it won't. But just, just, just by what you're talking about there, I mean, so I just can't get over one, one bloke swimming around the whole of the UK. Sorry, I'm just still just trying to.
1: And and then the the thing up and without going back to it and give me even more detail about the thing in Sky. He came out of the water and he was covered in jellyfish things, things like literally all over him. And it was and he didn't use a full wetsuit. He kind of had he had to have his biceps out because he's got massive guns. Um, You know, got to think about the gram. So um, yeah, he's got
0: this is a guns (laughs) T-shirt as well, isn't it? Let's be honest.
1: (laughs) But yeah, you'll see if you if you look at his Instagram, you'll see what I mean. But anyway, he was swimming with his guns out and he got stung all over his arms, the poor guy. And he came out and it was. Yeah, I felt, I couldn't complain about the fact that I had a slight headwind on the bike ride. It was a little bit tough. And there's a slight hill. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'll, yeah,
0: you've won that one, Is mate. he one of those, uh, so we've gone on a bit a tangent. This is going to be a very tangential uh, chat, by the way. I've not made any notes for this one, because I know you that I well. I can tell. But yeah. yeah, I've got a notebook just to give you the illusion that I've done some, some preparation. Yep. Although there are a few questions in there later for the quiz. Okay. Which I did brief you on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you didn't give me the questions. So it's oh, leave, no. No. oh, no. I didn't give you the questions. No, no. But... Just, sorry, that swimmer, flip a neck. Mm. So, but in getting involved in something like that, and this is what I wanted to ask you at some point, but why not bring it up now? It's clear, Chris, that you do like a bit of a challenge, don't you? Something a little bit different. You're constantly challenging yourself, yeah. aren't you? Even I, deep into retirement.
1: You're not a young man, still 47. Well, but deep you, you, into you, retirement. You yeah, I think it's, uh, well, for me personally, everyone's different, but I retired when I was 36. Um, I had a plan of what I wanted to do and, and sort of various projects I looked to get involved in, um, but it's I think you still need to have a purpose to to sort of inspire you to work hard. Whether it's cycling, whether it's doing a bit of training on the bike or in the gym or whatever, you want to have. you know, It's nice to have a reason to do it. And when you've got a little challenge coming up, um, it makes you. You know, there's days where you look out the side of the window and it's raining, you think, oh, I'll not bother going out today. But actually, I'm going to have to do some training. Yeah. So it, it's I find it fun and. You know, hopefully it's nothing too crazy, or not putting myself at risk, or doing anything that's that's too. I mean, I do a bit of motorsport, which is, I guess, it's kind of a little little bit crazy. I've done that for ten years now, um, and it's a passion of mine. I love doing it. I love the competition. I love the adrenaline, the speeds. I mean, you've been in the car with me at the LeBlanc event last year at Silverstone.
0: So I think we should tell them that anecdote, really.
1: Well, yeah. So basically, we did another (laughs) LeBlanc event day where it was in the morning. Out on the roads riding a bike and then a beautiful lunch. And then we went on the track at Silverstone and I was driving one of the cars there. Passenger laps. It's your own car, wasn't it? My own car. Yeah, your own pole, and it, yeah. some of the guests would come and have a shot and, and sit in the passenger seats. And it was raining, it was really wet. So you were going pretty slowly, not a lot of grip. And Matt, I didn't realize, was actually quite a nervous passenger. And I thought he was hamming it up. You know, Matt's, Matt's an entertainer, and he, he, <laughs> I thought he's he's putting it on for the camera because he had a GoPro filming himself but you were genuinely scared. We went down the first, we pulled out the pits down the first straight and you were grabbing onto things and you were going, (laughs) and I was like, we've barely even started to warm the tires up here. And then second lap, so because it was wet, we were kind of doing slides and stuff. We weren't going super fast, but we're doing some skids. And to do do skids, you've got to turn the traction control off to make it work. Otherwise, the the traction control kicks in and it kind of straightens the car and, and it can be a bit kind of flustery if you're not ready for it while we were mid-slide going around Stowe Corner at Silverstone, for any of you that know the track, Matt, his arms are flailing around. He pushed the button that turned the traction control back on. <laughs> so mid-slide, it was like, Whoa! I just about lost the control we, of the we car. We nearly flipped the car, Yeah, we? well, well you, been, uh... yeah, it just, it snapped back in. <laughs> and it was, and that was the only sketchy part of it was when you were trying to switch it back on. Yeah, I, you did. But you, but you didn't even, you weren't doing it on purpose. No, it was, no. It was just, it was just blind panic, yeah, uh, yeah. Chris, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but the thing is,
0: I've never done anything like that before. I'm, you know, I, I do like, I, I like cars. I, you know, I, I like a bit, a bit of speed, but I think that's just unnecessary, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I think the unnecessary bit was everybody got two hot laps, and which is enough for Silverson, Silverstone. It's, it's, it's pretty... What, what did you lap at,
1: roughly? In that car, in the dry, you did about two minutes 19 220. So it's gone four and a half minutes of hell, okay? Uh, I, and then
0: you decided, without my permission I may add, <laughs> yeah. and this... This is where we a bit awkward. He did two more laps.
1: I can't remember you? that bit.
0: I just, <laughs> he said, you looked at my face, and by that time, I'd nearly gone green. And he decided, yeah, just give it another right. lap. Another yeah. four minutes,
1: 20 of utter yeah. hell. Yeah, but he loved it, really. He loved it. There's some good pictures on on the Instagram feed after that. Yeah. yeah. And that was good fun. But yeah, I love fun. I love motorsport. I've done, you know, I raced at Le Mans in the 24-hour race in 2016. That was one of my big targets, another sort of reason for sticking with it. I've raced rallying, rally cross. GT racing, classics at Goodwood and at Silverstone. And yeah, I just, I find it's, it's a privilege to get to drive these amazing cars. And there is still that competitive element. And there's still that feeling of when you're on the start line and the lights are about to go out, it brings you back to the same feeling you had when you were in London and the Kieran in 2012, or, you know, the adrenaline, the nerves, the the, the sheer focus, because you, you have to focus. You have, you've got to take it seriously. It's not about the winning as such. It's about this this is potentially dangerous. You need to focus, and um, and there's a there's a fun side to that too. Yeah, but I remember when you when you retired um,
0: after, and then you, you became at that point the most successful Olympian ever. Tied twenty twelve, wasn't it? After the tw- after I London, said, yeah. after, after London, you retired, and I seem to remember very shortly afterwards seeing you on social media. Straight back in the gym doing squats. I thought that's not he's not he's not retired. (laughs) Look at the state of him. He's still
1: like look at the. But you, you never really switched off, did you? You clearly need to be driven. I I enjoy it. So I enjoy I enjoy the training, and it it wasn't just the winning medals that that appealed to me when I was in the cycling team. It was actually I enjoyed the process as well. I enjoyed having a goal every day and getting out of bed and saying right, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and and testing myself and having a little challenge and. And I think now the shift, you know, 10 or 11 years on, the shift is more about longevity and thinking, well, I want to be 80 years old. I want to make it to 80. But when, if I make it to 80, I want to be old, um, strong enough and healthy enough and mobile enough to be able to pick up my grandkids. Um, I was telling this story to one of my old teammates, Keen Amadi, at Phil Hines' wedding, one of my old teammates as well, recently. And he's like, he's saying, I was, I was looking at videos of you squatting on Instagram. And he said, you were doing like 200 and something kilos and, you know... <laughs> What are you doing? You know, and, and basically, I, I told this story about I wanted to lift my grandkids up when I'm 80. He said, How heavy do you think these grandkids are going to be? And I was like, It's quite a good point, actually. You know? It's
0: really quite a well observed point, yeah. actually, Chris. You, you might know. want to kind of listen yeah. to him, really. But it's, yeah. yeah. But so you, you clearly needed needed to be challenged, and it was very quickly. So you retired in 2012, you were racing cars
1: 2013, was it, or was
0: there a crossover?
1: Yeah, Well, no, there was no, I used to do track days at the end of each cycling season, so I had a non-competitive, turn up to the local track, I had a little Caterham, you know, lightweight, 500 kilograms track car, and I would do track day, and I would have fun, and I would do maybe five or six of those every year, and then the car would go in the garage and I wouldn't touch it much for the rest of the season. Bit dodgy, really. I don't
0: think the, the powers that be at British Cycling would be overly chuffed with you bazzing around it's Silverstone. It's funny.
1: It's funny. I think they, they, I, they right? I think they were kind of oblivious to it, really. I think it was only like did so you didn't tell them? You didn't well, tell them. Well, basically, yeah. I you mean, didn't put it on Instagram. I think I think they knew that. Do you know what? It's it's your own interest. It's not just. It's not like being a team. You're not a player in Man City or you know, Chelsea or whatever and you're worth millions of pounds. It's basically if you if you make a mistake and do something silly and hurt yourself. It's your career. It's isn't my it? career. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. you know, the, the pressures and and yeah, pressures are put on yourself by yourself, I think, more than the media or the public or the team. You want to be the best you can be. You're the one that that realizes what's in the line here. So you try to be sensible, but also get in balance in your life. Cause if all you think about is the training, is the competition. You can't do it for ten years, twelve years, fifteen years, whatever because you 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 burn out, so you have to have a, a kind of pressure release, you have to do it in as safe a way as you can I mean track we're you know joking about it, but track driving is a relatively safe activity um you know Katie Archibald broke her leg on a motorbike out yeah. on the road, not do any fault of her own um she fell off on wet leaves and you know broke her leg that this was a few years ago now, and um I think that's the point where the federation start thinking right we need to try and be a little bit aware of activities that could cause damage or, or you know, injure yourself. So, um, but yeah, I think it's it's life. Get that balance right. Enjoy your life, pressure release, and then you come back to training or, or, you know, you come back to the start of the season refreshed and ready to go. It certainly served you well, didn't it, when you look at what you've managed to achieve just in your cycling career. But the
0: thing, is, it's just the level of competitiveness. So... 2012 into 2013 2014 you're you're already racing at a high level with an objective to do le mans i mean that i mean that's just straight up to i mean what was that like and and how you obviously took that very very seriously but that must have given you so much sort of satisfaction
1: but for learning a new set of skills yeah i think it was it was the curiosity of how far can i take this also it was sliding doors moment really nissan were an olympic partner for the the 2016 olympics in in rio and they came to me and said, Would you come on as a mentor for some of our athletes and do some promotional work? And I was like, Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing a bit of racing now. I don't really want to tie myself into a car manufacturer that might exclude me from doing other races. And they said, Well, we, we have some opportunities. And we're also doing this thing called the GT Academy, where they got um, PlayStation gamers who'd never driven on racetracks before, ever. And they had this online competition. And the winners of the virtual racing then got to come and drive a real, real well, there's world. A, there's a movie, Gran Turismo, yeah. which is based on that. So that's in that. that's Jan, yeah, yeah. Jan Mardenberg. Yeah, yeah. So Jan won the first ever Gran Turismo, got into a racetrack, you know, won the, the real world competition, and then he went to Le Mans and got onto the podium at Le Mans. He's now still racing in Japan, really? Super GT. And they had that for many years. So they had this structure already in place for basically bringing complete novices up to a high level. So I, I piggybacked the GT Academy. So that film. I benefited from all that support and from Darren oh, Cox, okay. who was the... I think Darren Cox was involved. He was the one that came up with the idea for the film. Maybe a little bit egotistical, Darren, but you got Orlando Bloom to play him. I thought, you know, I was like, <laughs> it's a bit of a push, Darren, but... clean cyclist, <laughs> though, Orlando. Yeah. yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah he true. is a keen cyclist. Another little mini cross over there. Yeah, exactly. No, there's a lot of cyclists out there that you meet from different parts of the world, different industries, and yeah, it's massive now. It is. Um,
0: yeah, Cal Crotchlow, another one.
1: Yeah. Friend big friends of friend Cav? Friend of
0: the pod. Is he? They've had him on the know, pod, cool. yeah. It was, we were in the Isle of Man um, a couple of years ago doing some stuff with Cav. The Cav driver with Cav, actually, went out on, a Cab, on a, just a normal run with a few riders, a few club riders. Pete Kenyak was there mm-hmm. and Cal Crutchlow. Me and Cav on the front going down this country lane, really narrow, wet, muddy. And we come, come up to this corner. We're going at a really, like 30k an hour or something, just mm-hmm. steady club run pace. Crutchlow comes up the inside like me and Cav was stood still and just went through this, this chicane and without really even like, it was just the strangest thing. Wow. And he was like 200 metres in front. <laughs> and we, me and Cav went up to him and said, what, what on earth were you doing? He said, you guys are just going too slow. You just don't understand how the tyre grip trade-off, do you? And then he went into the physics and about feeling the bike go. Inco- wow. And even Cav was like, what? Wow. But it was, it was amazing, just a demonstration of,
1: of that crossover the hard and- part i think on a bike on a on a pedal bike is that the contact patch is so small that it's not like in a car you know most cars there's that moment where you start to feel the the the, the traction starts to give way and you can slide and you can correct it with a bit of opposite lock and it's there's there's ways of doing You've got it got a bit of a margin haven't you yeah yeah but on a bike on a pushback as we all know you don't often get the warning and if it's the front wheel it, as soon as it starts to go you're down and it's it can be a broken wrist it could be a broken collarbone and it's, it's that trade-off between the risk and reward. Is it a race? Are you going for a gold medal? Are you looking to win this, you know, the, on GC? You throw everything at it, fair enough. But if you're going out for a club ride and uh, you could end up taking the whole bunch down, that's when I've become quite, quite an old man in the way that I ride. Yeah. I've become much more conservative and go for this. I don't, I don't, you know, on the bike, I'm actually way safer than I used to be, which is...
0: I think I am as well.
1: I yeah, think it's Sign of age, I think. It is. It's,
0: <laughs> you, you, your outlook does change. I mean, yeah. did, did you, actually looking back... At uh, your yeah, appetite for risk. And it, doing stuff like the Kieran, for example, um, that, that's, qu- that's quite a. I mean, sprinting's dodgy enough, uh, but it's relatively controlled, isn't it? Yeah. But the, Kieran, the Kieran's I
1: mean, way more, there's way more variables. Um, and also, it's only when something goes wrong with the bike. So the, the week before the Worlds in 2008 in Manchester, I was doing a, just a standard warm up jump behind the motorbike. So you're in a small gear, the bike's gone up to 80 something k's an hour. And you're sitting, you know, two or three inches off the back of the bike, and my, as I got to the end of the effort, just one lap, across the line, and my back tire blew out. And you're doing 80 k's an hour, and you're just desperately trying not to... So when you've got the, the tub that's... You can ride on a flat tire on a tub, but it, only if you've got the, the sort of relative contact patch um, perpendicular to the track... So you're trying not to lean the bike, because if you lean the bike, you'll just wash out in the way. But if you don't lean the bike, you're going to go up and hit the barrier. So you're desperately trying to backpedal as well to slow down. And I I managed to scrub about 20 or 30 Ks an hour off before it finally, eventually lost traction and I went down. And it was the week before the Worlds. And all I did was lose skin. I didn't didn't break anything, nothing severely injured. But after that, you start thinking, you know, every warm-up I was thinking, you know, what could go wrong here? And if you start questioning... What could you know if you don't think about it, it's fine, but when you start when you have a little accident, you start to worry about it. And if that seed of doubt goes into your head, you never quite fully commit. So you have to get beyond that and realize, you know what, if you crash, you crash, we'll deal with it. But at the moment, it's very unlikely, crack on. And then the crashes tend to happen in, in Kieran races when you're not decisive about what you're doing, if you're hesitant, if you're hesitant, yeah. if, you, if you're caught in two decisions about where you should be, that's often when you see folk. You know, they get caught on the wrong side of the wheel or they, they, they basically tangle or they're, they're not defending or they're not being aggressive enough. Ironically, you want to be aggressive and it's, it tends to be safer that way.
0: Was there any point in your career, We you look at the success that you've had and the advancements during your, your, your period of success with the, the mental side of, of racing, the, uh, um, Steve Peters, those, mm. did you ever have such... Did you ever have any self-doubt? Did did you ever find find yourself off the back of an injury or or the back of a crash or just nagging doubt? Did you ever find yourself in a really difficult place midway through your run of success that was really
1: problematic? I definitely have self-doubt. And in many ways, self-doubt was what kind of drove me on because I never felt completely, I wasn't the kind of athlete who felt invincible and was like, I'm definitely going to win. And, I'm, you know, there's a lot of athletes in different sports we know who have that aura about them. So if you have the belief that you are invincible and you lose one race, that whole belief system, that whole confidence, everything is shattered immediately. So I had the opposite. I used to think I am absolutely vulnerable and beatable unless I come in with absolutely every single box ticked, 100% best preparation, best rest, best diet, best equipment ready. And then that was was how I prepared for a race. that was enough
0: for you? So everything is just sealed off and like yeah, all as many... So you've done all that you can do. Yes, to be, the, uh, right, to be ready. There's, yeah, there's the other variables, of course, your yeah. opponents, I mean, luck. But you,
1: yes, and you ne- but you never then came in saying, well, I've done all that, so I'm going to win. You would come in saying, I've done everything I can within my powers to be the best I can be today. And, and use, almost using that, that fear of not being in that prepared state to drive you on in training. So every single day in training, I would give 100%, and that's hand on heart, honestly. You know, it's not it's like... It's quite simple, you tell the coach, really, it? It's dead easy. Yeah, and yeah. you don't have to think too far ahead. You say, look, today I've got this session to do. I'm going to commit in every effort and do the best I can, which sounds obvious. And you think, well, surely everyone does that. But there's a natural self-preservation that we all have to when it's getting really painful, when you're fatigued, when things are hurting, you you just hold back a percent, a little bit to get through that session. So you can tick the box. I've done that session, but you've not really done it to the best of your ability. It's better to do six efforts, 100%, than eight efforts, 99% or 10 efforts. High quality, not, not quantity. It's, it's really interesting, I don't know how, I mean, obviously most
0: of you here are cyclists, ridden at various kind of levels, but I would imagine we've all ridden quite hard at some point, to the point of exhaustion. But was there any particular method that you used to use? Because I've seen some some footage of you on a, a King Cycle back in there, a Watt bike, whatever it was, maybe maybe 10 years ago, yeah. doing these sprint intervals with crash mats either side, because you'd, and a sick bucket and you would vomit and then just basically
1: collapse onto
0: and that's how deep that you
1: You would would push yourself the the worst the worst session i ever did was it sounds really innocuous really kind of you think on paper that doesn't look that bad it's all it was was 30 second sprint minute recovery times four you that's not like a, a 200k mountain stage it's not a you know that's done in the space where you do two sets of those so the whole thing is done with a 15 minute or half an hour gap in between in the space of an hour. And you think, that's, that's not that bad. But what happens within that time? So within those four efforts in each set, the first one, you do it. and You think that was all right. The second one, you go, this is starting to sting a bit. And you get to the end of the 30 seconds and go, that was, that was pretty horrible. But by the third one, you're questioning your life choices, thinking this is just, this is, I've gone way too hard. I've committed way too much. There's something wrong. I'm ill. There's something i mean, can't be right today. And then the final one, it's it's hard to explain. It's not just about pain. It's about the, the muscles start to become well, basically the, the, the pH gets so low, the lactate gets so high that the muscles can't function. They don't they don't operate in that in that sort of bandwidth. So you're getting right to the to the, the sort of envelope of what your muscles can do to keep the grind to a halt. It's like an engine with it's no oil. The legs it just start seizes to go up. Up
0: kind of sideways. Yeah, don't it, they? it just that, completely that, seizes yeah. up,
1: and you know that you can't let up. That every single fibre in your body is telling you to just back off, to ease off the pedals, just to ease a little bit. And the hard thing is, it's when you start to sort of pedal squares, the last five seconds, that is where the really important stuff happens. That's, that's where you're breaking muscle yeah. down, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's that's when your body is getting used to tolerating lactate, and it's it's if you can produce huge volumes of it or huge concentrations of it then the body has to deal with it and it has to find a way to to learn how to deal with it so it comes back next time it's adapted to that a little bit and you become better at that so when you do a standing kilo when the lactate starts to come in it 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 buffers it a little bit better for, for four or five seconds which means you can hang on to the pace for that little bit longer so you start dying off a little bit later than your rivals and you can post a time that's well one thousandth of a second quicker i won my first world title in Copenhagen in 2002, by one thousandth of a second, Blimey. at the end of a, a four lap time trial. So every single pedal rev counted, and and you would have a crash, Matt, as you said. You'd, you'd fall off the bike, or you you couldn't even get yourself off the bike. You'd seized up, and your, your coach or the lab technician would unclip your pedals, lift your leg over the, the saddle, and you would fall down, and then you would curl up in a ball. That's and not nice, it, and it was just, and you would have a sick bucket if you were, because you get you feel nauseous. And you imagine like, you know, when you're riding up a hill and your legs and lungs are burning and it's really hurting, you think if I, as soon as you stop, oh, it's better. The pain's off, you know, the, the pain starts to ease. But the difference with doing this lactate intervals was that your body didn't just suddenly feel better. It almost felt worse. It goes into a, a deeper hole, trying to get the body back to this normal level, this homeostasis where the body's in a happy state. And it, you, you lie there in this fetal position for 15 minutes, feeling nauseous, shutting your eyes, almost going to sleep. And then after 15 minutes, you kind of pop out of it. And you go, right, should we do a second set? That sounds good. And, and it was just this, this... i have nightmares now. But yeah, it was, it was the thing that I used to get up in the morning of those sessions. And that wasn't every day or every week. That was for maybe a six or eight week period leading up to a major competition. Um, but the pain that you would get, or the, the fear of the pain, you'd get up in the morning and you'd always do it in the sort of mid-morning because you, you couldn't do it in the afternoon because you'd have all day to worry about it. You'd get up, have your breakfast, let it settle, head down. And do this session, and the feeling after you know you had one person in the room with you, the lab technician, so there wasn't a crowd, there wasn't a TV crew, there wasn't people cheering you on, but some of the some of the the most elated moments I've had in my career would be a day where I'd set a new pB for power average power for that that session, and you walk out thinking i've taken I know I've taken a step towards that gold medal, and nobody you know no one's there to see it, but you still feel like you know it's just a training session on a static bike, but somehow. It gives you this amazing buzz, and um, yeah, it's it's one of the things I miss in a weird way, but absolutely don't miss in in most ways. Yeah,
0: I can't. I mean, I yeah did a lot of intervals, a different mm. sort of intervals. But I I used to have to go for a nervous poo before I did intervals because <laughs> uh, I but I'd I'd have certain things that I would. What I was as well as the 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 physiological side, it was the psychological mm. side because that's all well and good, but. What sets champions apart is the fact that they can put themselves in a mental place to tolerate the pain. Mm. So there's what the body does, mm. and it gets used to it. But there's also, the like, a lot of people would have backed off a little bit before because they can't tolerate it. It's the tolerance. It's a normal and, thing and, to and do. The, and, and it's, it's, yeah. it's this. It's the, it's the psychological part that it, it intrigues me. And I, I used to think about, it's quite dark, this, but it's what yeah. I used to do in some of my most intense interval sessions was to picture... If I can't, get it would basically be life and death between like my son. I'd picture my son, thinking, "I'm gonna, I've got to save him," and I've, I've got to get to this point to, in order to save somebody. So I would put myself, I would physically throw up, get myself to that point, and I'd do it by visualizing that what what's the worst that could happen, and that I'm only training on my bike. So it's quite dark, but wow. I c- I could put myself in a really dark place not very often this is a great it's, way to it's just sell cycling to the yeah, public it's a, and
1: but it's, it's a fun but, thing to do sorry.
0: And cycling for everyone it's to... uh <laughs> well i'll say i actually thought i was saying to, to ian over there and uh, i think dan earlier on
1: i want this to be a really happy uh yeah it's, yeah, podcast. it's not always like this but, but no, yeah. it, it's, it's yeah. fascinating though, but it is it, and our I, game I, is psychological yeah, though, isn't it as well? is it is and that's and i love sport for that and it crosses the eras. as it crosses sports the psychological or the, the mental side of sport is what fascinates me more than the technical side, more than the the, the world records, because everything progresses, everything gets faster. There's there's new technology, the diet improves, you know, track surfaces, everything gets better. But it's you can look back fifty years and you can see, you know, you can see the mental challenge between two boxers or you know a, a mountain climber in the Tour de yeah. France or whatever the sport is, and knowing that they're going through the same thing that you were when you were doing it. Um, or maybe slightly different if they have a different approach but just i love the mental side of sport and i find that the most interesting and uh, just on on the on the the mental side of it and and the the psychological preparation
0: um the the flip side is the amount that the weird kind of joy you get out of the sport though isn't it it's, it's when you know you've invested what you've invested or when you know you've got a pb in a club 10 or whatever it is it's the it's the suffering and then it's the elation that is that's that's what yeah. i kind of miss a little bit. I don't miss the cut and thrust of racing so much. It's just the buzz I get after I've done a a good ride or I can sit and have a cake. It's it's just... doing the best you can. It's it's, it's, addicted to it. Seeing
1: what you're capable of. For me, it was a curiosity of, I wonder how far I can go in this sport. And I started out way before there was any sort of Coaching or infrastructure or, or pathway that you could follow. Like now, there's there's clear pathways as a, a talented 15, 16 year old. You know, you get picked up by the, the program, and this is the journey you're going to be on. If you hit these targets, this is where you could go to. And, you know, we were both in that era before where you yeah. didn't have, you had to have your own bike, you got loaned a skin suit for the race, you'd have. You got loaned a tracksuit track top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a 1996 Worlds in Manchester, bin liner full of tracksuit tops, you know, That's slightly true. grubby cuffs yeah. and, and collars. And you, and, but the thing about that was, I remember getting mine, signing it out for the week and thinking, I wonder which of my heroes have worn this. You know, was it Graham O'Brien Is it Chris Borman? Is it Matt Stevens? You know, who, who's worn this before me? And it was just like, I mean, it was just it was a was. shell suit top, but it was like, this is so cool. It,
0: it, was, but, well, it was, it literally, we're not, not exaggerating. It literally was, you'd get picked up. You get, a, back in the day when you got picked for GB, you'd get a letter
1: Saying you'd be... No, you wouldn't get a phone call. You'd get, yeah, you get a letter. Yeah, you'd get a letter from Northampton, wouldn't it? Yeah. Kettering. Kettering. Kettering headquarters. Jim Henry, CEO. He was the only... There was only two full-time members of staff. Yeah. And they would, yeah, typed out on a typewriter. Yep. Send your letter. Black and white in those days. Quite yeah. often it was addressed to me, Dad. <laughs> uh, and then... the pigeon flew it in. And
0: then it, it would be like me... At, you'd pick such and such a race, meet at such and such a service station on the M6 or the M1 or the M25. Then you'd go... The bin liner would be there and it was first come, first served. Mm -hmm. So it'd generally be too small, too large, and too medium. And if you got the wrong side, literally, I mean it was. I mean, and and then and then look at what happened when you got lottery funding and stuff like that.
1: It's incredible. And it's so I feel very fortunate I've experienced both sides of the the sort of amateur era and the professional era. So you never forgot where you came from. You never forgot how lucky you were to have a mechanic. I turned up at the first World Cup in 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 '97, the first race I went to. And normally you arrive with your bike bag, your bike box, and you get to the hotel or the track, and then you would unpack your bike and you'd build it up and you'd put your warm up gear on, ready for for the first session. And we went down to the track, and the bikes were all lined up, already assembled. Sandy Gilchrist was there. We had our own mechanic. He's still there, yeah, I know. The in And it's just like somebody's built my bike for me, and they pump the tires up and they put the gear. This is amazing. But you just, <laughs> you just, you know, and so you never take it for granted, and therefore you always appreciate the opportunity you've got. Um, and it's, yeah, it, so I feel very lucky that I've been able to see both sides of the fence and not, not just purely had the, the professional era or equally before the funding was there and wonder, I wonder if it had that support, would I have been able to become an Olympic champion? Like a lot of athletes that like we both know who were incredibly talented, were very successful, but had a whole lot more potential than if they'd had that um, financial backing and, and the opportunities and the facilities and the coaching. What's it like having a stadium, a velodrome named after you? It's pretty cool. I was there yesterday, actually. Were oh, you? Yeah. yeah, randomly. Um, it, what's nice is when you type in the postcode, um, you know, you say you're doing the sat nav, and you type it in, and it pops up Sir Chris Hoy Velodrome, and you're like, "That's, pre- that's pretty cool." Um, what, do you ki- it's... what do your kids think of that? Are they? My, My kids are, are kids I, I, now. I, they're just turned six and eight, so they'll be they'll be aware their dad was yeah. quite famous, won't they? Yeah, now, yeah, it's uh, hard. Or, to, it's hard to gauge what they think, you know, because there's stuff they just take for granted and sort of accept as normal. You know just turn the telly on i might be doing some punditry at the worlds or the olympics and you know? all there's there's daddy on the telly or whatever um but but yeah this you know they were at the track for the world i had my one morning off at the world championships in glasgow recently so what did i do of course i went to the veldrum to watch some track cycling with my kids and then um, but you come in and they, they're sort of looking at the wall and they're like it's got my name on the side of the wall and they're just looking up at it as if i Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, what, what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right, yeah. Like, as if it's the most normal thing in the world. But it's, I don't know, it, I, it's, kids just, they just want you to be their dad. They're, they don't care consider, what you do. You yeah. like, I could be doing any occupation. Um, I think it's kind of hard to, for them to explain what I do now because I don't go and work set hours. I don't do a specific thing. Um, it's hard for me to explain what I do. But, yeah, I do lots of different things. But they're, like, amused by, you know, for them... We have this big battle about iPads and how how long they get on the iPad. You know, that's all they want to do is play on the iPad. So I'll be sitting doing work, and they're like, "But, Daddy, how do you get to sit on the iPad or on the computer?" You know, I'm working. Yeah, well, you know, what's what's working? So it's for them. It's the world is very confusing. But um, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea what they think about my cycling, or I've not really I've not really talked to them that much. I went to my son's it was my son's primary school just before lockdown started and did a little presentation at, at their school assembly. And it was Olympic week. And that's why they invited me down. And I took my medals down and I talked to the kids. And it was the whole school. It was a really small school, 90 kids in the whole of the primary school. And they were all crammed into this little um, assembly room, this little hall. And I did a little talk and I showed the medals. And then I said, any questions? And Callum, not now, but back then, he was quite shy. It was just, it was in reception. So it was just, you know, first year at school. And all the hands shot up, and Callum's hand went up, and I thought, "Blimey, he's gonna—you know—he's gonna talk in front of the whole school." I was like, "Okay, so yeah, yeah, Callum, what, what's your question?" Thinking, "What's he gonna ask? Is he gonna ask about the Olympics and the podium, or traveling the world, or you know, what it was like racing?" And he just said, um, "Why did you wear gloves?" <laughs> and that was the question. <laughs> I was like, um, "Well, I wore gloves because you needed to get good grip on the bars, and in case you fell off, it protected your hands." He's like, all right, that, no, that's fine. That's that's all I wanted to know, and that was it. That was the, the sum total of his interest in track cycling and the Olympic Games. Is is that? I mean, they're still very very young, aren't they? But that, is there
0: a sense that either of them might want to do? I mean, look at like Cabs, young lad, Casper.
1: Yeah, I, I think mean, he's destined for great. I, mean, I mean, he's. I mean, he's. And Bradley, Bradley's and Brad, yeah, Bradley's lad. Yeah, yeah, world champion. Was he world medalist or world? Um, he, silver medalist, silver in, medalist, in TT. European yeah. Yeah. champion on the track yeah. already. Yeah, huge talent, and it's. It's a double-edged sword because you have the, the the label of being Bradley Wiggins' son or Mark Cavendish's son, um, you know, everywhere you go. But there's the benefit too. You know, you get opportunities that you might not have. You've got your the wealth of knowledge of your your parent that's been in the sport before. I, I basically want to encourage both my kids to to find their passion. If it's cycling, I'd be delighted. But it could be anything. I don't yeah. I don't want to make you know. Spoon feed them cycling and try and encourage them to be cyclists if that's not their thing. But if it is, that would be amazing because it's a great sport. I mean, I've you just we both have been so lucky to travel the world to experience so many amazing places, meet people, do cool things. So if if they got into it and if they were successful at it, I would be I'd be delighted. But even just seeing them riding their bikes, you know, my little boy, we're we're out through the summer holidays, all three of us together, and Sarah as well. But no, Callum in particular, he was out recently riding up and down the hill outside our house, just doing like basically hill sprints without realising that's what he was doing because he just enjoys the fast bit going down and he wants to get back up the hill as quick as he can to do it again. So yeah, he's he's a glutton for punishment. That is a joy though when seeing your kids ride. I think
0: one of the most joyful bits of being a dad for Mm -hmm. me was, although my son's 23 now and he's not interested in cycling at all, he's always doing his own thing which is which is fine because he's happy but it was when he could first ride a bike mm. I mean um, better than any win I've ever, ever had I think oh. it's just it was just it's so much joy in seeing the the freedom that you get from the bike but seeing it with your own kids is one of the most rewarding things I think of that's I've ever experienced in my life
1: haven't? yeah because you remember that it vividly comes back to you that feeling and you see them just absolutely buzzing and I've taken both Chloe and Callum to the BMX track at the Velodrome in Manchester every sort. Where you started out, yeah, in that one, but you were on the BMX, yeah, yeah, On BMX, yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, basically, it's the first time I've been at home on a Sunday to take them. Was last weekend. So my wife's been taking them for the last six or seven weeks through the summer holidays, and it took a bit of time because it's quite an intimidating place. If you've ever seen like a proper Supercross track, these massive start ramp. Great big jumps. They are scary. It's, yeah, it is yeah. scary. And um, I went to watch them and they were just, they've got past the fear stage. It's now familiar. They're now enjoying it. And they're having so much fun. And I just sitting there thinking, wow, who who would have thought, you know, sort of 40 years after I first started racing BMX, I'm sitting there in the stands watching my kids having fun and just, just having a blast. It's not about, you know, of course it's a sport and there are opportunities if you get into it and if the desire is there. But really, you just want, my aim or my hope is they find a sport, ideally cycling, that they want to do till they're, you know, seventy, eighty years of age. They still want to do when they're when they've got grandkids. Um, so it's it's not. Pre- Whoops, breaking the place. Okay, okay, oh thanks, Sorry, I got it. Um, yeah, it's doing something that they they hopefully have a passion for, and and uh, yeah, that's the start, that's the spark. And someone like Scarpa can help you. Helps me be, anyway, a little, yeah. little bit older as well. Keep up with them <laughs> when they're yeah when they're going fast. But yeah, so basically, Scarpa. I mean, all the guys are here. Um, from the team. and three years now, is it roughly, since we first first started chatting about it, Ian Brown um, came to me and said, "I've got something quite exciting. I'd like to show it to you." And you know, you get, show, you get shown all sorts of exciting, new potential cycling products. Well, I, I do, anyway, people come to me and say, "What about this?" And some are good, some are not so good, some are, you know, okay. And this this was immediately obvious that it was a fantastic idea and it was alistair darwood's idea sitting right here he's a very talented man I, you know i can't help but inflate his ego even more here but yeah not only did he have why
0: he sat on the front row yes, so yeah. easy
1: to point out so during yeah. the pandemic he's a doctor working full-time as a doctor invented a new ventilator a new idea for a ventilator took it to red bull advanced technologies they made them and run them out for the nhs so you know, most people it's quite humble. One, one, one good idea in their lifetime. A few weeks later, a few months later, he's out mountain biking in the Alps on his his holiday, and um, you know he's not a mountain goat. You want, you don't mind me saying that. You're built for power and speed rather than. It's built this. for a shorter effort. Yeah, yeah isn't it? a bit like me. You know, and um, so yeah, he was walking up the hill, pushing his mountain bike up the hill, thinking, I don't want to spend eight grand on a full suspension e bike, but. There must be a way of electrifying my bike, which I really like, and it's great fun, and I don't want to buy a new one, but how could we do it? Yes, there's different units that drive the front wheel or you know, things that convert a bike into an e-bike, but nothing you could clip on and clip off. So he thought about it and came up with this simple concept of driving the rear disc. And it's the best ideas are the simplest ones, and it is a simple idea, but it's genius. And essentially, you, you change the disc on your back wheel, And then you clip on this unit, the Scarper unit, and it it literally takes. Well, it took us, we did it the other day. Where's Andy Wallace? Uh, He's around, he's gone home. Uh, But yeah, basically, we did it in less than five minutes, didn't we? Back wheel out, change the disc, back wheel back in, the little band with the the sort of um, nipple that it clips into. Five minutes, your bike is an e bike, but not just converted into an e bike. You can then take the unit back off, and it's your normal bike again. And it only weighs, it weighs less than, it's like 3.8, 3.9 kilos so your combined weight of your bike is still probably half the weight of a regular e-bike but you get all the benefits of it you choose when to use it you can share the unit with your friends you go out with someone that's not a regular cyclist that couldn't keep up on a road ride you give them the unit they can ride along with you it's you know when when Ian told me the idea the concept and showed it to me it was in my eyes already fully formed you know i thought it was going to be some shonky prototype that didn't really work or you know and that's a great idea, but does it work in reality? This The first shot I had of the prototype, it was amazing. And it's only got better since then. So now we have this exciting stage where we're able to show it to the public for them to place their orders, to have a shot of it. Next so year's coming out, isn't it? Next year. Yeah. Um, but you can sort of jump the queue, or you can yep. get the place on the, the queue um, by placing your deposit down now. But it's, it's brilliant. And, you know, it's, yeah, I'm just so excited because I, I, I can see the future and I can see people in London, we're here in London today, commuting to work on, you know, any old bike that's got disc brakes, even if they haven't got disc brakes, you can, there's a solution around that too, but disc brake bike, riding to work, parking their bike outside, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy bike, leave it out, no one's going to steal that bike, you clip off the Scarpa unit, you charge it at your desk, or take it with you, and then you clip it back on for your ride home. So it's, yeah, it's, I think it, it's it really is exciting. We're There's been a lot of hard work the whole team are in here or most of the team are in here today they've worked so hard for the last three years i've just i've had all the fun stuff i get to test all the bits and come in with ideas that are you know from a cycling perspective early on about you know how much power do we need and how you know what's the best way to to utilize it but they're all the brains they're the guys that have done the hard graft and it's yeah really proud to be part of the team and of course you can have a go on it after the pod uh, I think we're going to be knocking about for a bit afterwards. This is my actually my bike here, which That's, is it's quite right yeah. now. are like
0: those? Uh, I mean, uh, the 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 gizmo aside, the scarper side. I like your I like your, um, I like your wheels. gravel bike. Yeah, the wheels, the wheels are wheels.
1: cool. They're I mean they're brilliant. I've got the same same wheels on my road bike. So we've got a road and gravel bike, and yeah, with Andy Wallace at Posh Bikes, he's been we've been sort of working on this for a while now. They're going to be available soon, um, but it's. The wheels are great because from in my mind they look cool, they're a bit different but in a crosswind you don't get that kind of buffeting you get with deep section rims but in terms of general aero and they're very lightweight as too and there's not much weight on the rim so for climbing they're really good too. They're stiff enough, they handle me doing sprints on them. It reminds me of a rally yeah. burner yeah. for like, like 1986. Yeah. yeah, maybe I, that's I,
0: why they appealed so much. If you paint them, them one yellow, one blue, you'd be almost <laughs> like a semi-mag burner, wouldn't it? Yeah. From, from back it. in the day. But no, it's, it's great and it's, yeah, exciting times ahead. You were brought up in Murrayfield. Correct. Okay. Yes. You're ready for a bit of a in quiz. Edinburgh, that is for people. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's a. Well, let's be honest, it's, it's, it's the slightly posh part of Edinburgh, isn't it?
1: Um, I might have brought, dragged it down a little <laughs> bit by living there, but yeah, it's well. Right. Well, I've got
0: a quiz, but I've got a jingle to play. Okay. Uh, which took upwards of five or six minutes to cobble together. Uh, I exciting. believe. So here we go.
1: Yo, yo. What's up? Y'all ready? Uh, uh Let's do it. Uh, uh, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. It. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the... Murrayfield Quiz. It's
0: time for the Murrayfield Quiz. Just put your hands together. <laughs> Please, thanks <laughs> a lot. Thank you. very much indeed.
1: Wow going to wow. move over here, sorry. yeah, yeah. So uh, there's, no,
0: well? uh, there's no shenanigans. That was that was impressive.
1: Yeah. So did you write, uh, did you come up with that? I, I lyrics
0: up, or? Again, I came up with a concept, uh, right. and that was about it. Uh, <laughs> we got Nile um, from Hot Chili to to, cool. to to pull that together for us. Mm. Okay, this is something we've been doing for the last I don't know 70 episodes or so. The hometown quiz. Yeah. Four questions about your hometown. Mm-hmm. Some of them are quite tangential because I'll be honest with you, Murrayfield didn't have a particularly big Wikipedia page. So I've had to go further afield. You could have just done Edinburgh. That would have been the easier But route. that's what I did. I ah, had to kind right. of, it bled into Edinburgh. Because okay. yeah. uh, it is still Edinburgh. It's Yeah, it's yeah. kind of, it's not a town. It's a bit no. of Edinburgh, isn't it? It's just an re- a area of Edinburgh. Yeah. An area. So it's yeah. kind of shot loose in, in that sense. So it's a multiple choice quiz. Okay. So I'm not going to put you on the spot. So you've got options. <laughs> well, you kind of are putting me on the spot, but yeah. <laughs> and also, what I think I might do, just to spice things up a little bit, is if there's one that you're struggling with- I can ask the audience? You can you can ask the audience. Ah, I like you can, it. Phone, you can phone a friend. I've got uh, a story about that. Before we, you want Far to... away. What so you... yeah, I
1: went to, I did, um, it was the last ever Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that Chris Tarrant did. Oh, right. So it was his last show. And I was doing it with um, Kevin Bridges, the comedian. And it's for charity, you know, you, you're on there. And we got to, so we had, you can have your two phone a friend people. My, my wife's, one of her best friend's husband is- like a, the walking Wikipedia. He is an absolute genius. He's incredible. He's, he, his mind is, he's like one kind of this Mekon. You know, he should have a, a head that size, the size it's of a like brain. fowl Yeah, man. exactly, because yeah. he's so smart. And, and my dad, because my dad is one of these practical people who just is really, I, I don't know, he's got lots he listens to listens to the radio. That's where he says he gets most of his knowledge from, okay, um, in that. a kind of old school way. Um, so I had this, they're my two of friends. And we got to the question, and it was about, um, I think it was how many liters of water in, in a, a year does the average UK household um, use? And it was, you know, A, B, C, D. And it was for 50,000 pounds, or it was like a decent amount of money, or maybe more than that. And and it was, and Kevin was like, I don't know. And, you know, I didn't know, or not enough to commit and potentially yeah. lose the money. So it was like, we're going to phone a friend. And it was, who do you, could you phone? And I should have gone to my dad. You know, because he's he's got that kind of practical knowledge, and that would have been probably his perfect thing. Called the human Wikipedia, and he he kind of, he he just, he was like, I'm not confident, I don't know, I can't do it. So we we didn't commit, we didn't do it. We took the cash. We took the cash. It was still, I think it was, you know, 25,000 or something. Whatever it was, but yeah. So I've actually sat in that situation. I have phoned a friend, and they were no use, but... um, Sorry, oh, well. Paul. Yeah. Well, uh, we appreciate I'm, your effort, Paul. That was great. Ian over
0: there in the black t shirt is on his phone now. He's just, uh, he's matched it. <laughs> £25,000. What a,
1: do you know what? What a guy. What lovely, a guy. Lovely, an applause for Paul. I mean, for he Ian, he's yeah.
0: like, he's up for a challenge. Uh, <laughs> James, uh, CEO, is frowning at the moment. Uh, a little bit concerned. But anyway, let's move on with the quiz. Uh, it is, as I said, multiple choice. Um, question number one. Okay. Exciting. Okay. Uh, again, these are quite tangential. Okay. Uh, very small Wikipedia page. Please forgive me. Right, uh, question number one: Who played two sold-out dates at Murrayfield Stadium in May of this year? Of this year? Of this year? Absolutely okay. Absolutely no idea. Right? So, okay. Multiple choice. This is where this is where this, is where this helps. Mm. So, they played two dates. Was it A, the Sugar Babes? Was it B? Sir Harry Styles. Is he a sir? I don't think he is. is he? Let's call him Harry Styles. <laughs> Sounds right though, doesn't it? Sir Harry of Styles, like yes. Sir Christopher of Hoy. <laughs> Very similar. Uh, C, Beyonce.
1: Or D, Taylor Swift, otherwise known as Tay Tay, I believe to a friend. Yeah. I so, don't <laughs> think it's Beyonce. I think that would have created more of a stir. I mean, I, I don't live in Murrayfield or Edinburgh now. So this is a real stab in the dark. I think it was either the No, eh, not Sugar babes, No, although they have recently reformed. They have recently reformed. Who's, who's the? Was the second one B? Uh, Harry Styles. Any fans of I mean, any of can, those? I mean, if you want to use Even it now, you like a now, Taylor Swift fan, sir? You, you can. No, you heard about it? Heard you, tour, can, you can no. phone
0: a friend, and I want to say phone a friend. Point at someone in the audience who might give the answer. And, but that's that's one. I'm life gonna going to go. On. Okay, I'm just going to stab in the dark. A it's not sugar babes ah. it was sir harry of styles ah, that was oh. my second choice mm. harry got Styles. It. So it looks like the gentleman so wait, over there so it, the charity
1: lost the money then is it so the
0: chari- no you owe the charity oh, some oh, money. Oh, okay,
1: i believe okay. um,
0: right i'm just going to get my just going to get my beer for the second part of the quiz so keep myself my whistle whetted as they say so uh, not a great start i'll be honest with you chris yes yeah, uh, no points so far but you've got three more questions to kind of really turn this around okay so Look at it as, remember that time when Robert Forsterman went from the gun?
1: Yes, I him do. And beat in the final. Yeah. He went from the
0: gun, didn't he? He did. I mean, that's you not got like big cricket. push as
1: well. D- did
0: he? <laughs> yeah. From Dietliff Con- Ubel. Uh, uh, controversial. The yeah. Anyway, you chase, you're chasing Forsterman. Right, All okay. Right? Um, we know how that ended. Um, that's what I meant. Yeah. That wasn't the greatest analogy yeah. then, was it? Uh, think, scrap that analogy. <laughs> yeah. Use another one. You can still get a your yeah, own four. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, right. Uh, my writing is atrocious these days. Right, I've already mentioned this bit, but Murrayfield, an affluent area to the west of Edinburgh, to cite Wikipedia, they're the actual words, uh, has what type of climate? So uh, Murrayfield, basically Edinburgh, has what type of climate according to the Koppen Climate Scale, which is the internationally accepted scale of climates? So right, is it A, (laughs) temperate oceanic? Is it B, Subtropical highlands? Is it C, temperate maritime, or is it D, boreal or a boreal climate? Sorry, or a boreal climate. So, temperate oceanic, subtropical highland, temperate maritime, or boreal
1: climate? Temperate maritime, I guess. Not oceanic because it's not, well, I'm guessing that would be somewhere that's opening to the ocean. It's onto the, well, for look at any uh, Edinburgh, any oceanologists, forth. Uh, maritime possibly, or uh, what's the thing on borealis? Uh, bo- a boreal climate. Boreal, a boreal. Absolutely no idea. <laughs> you're, you're, you profess to be a, lot, a, a, an, an intellectual. This is, this is big, big, oh, so you this must have Come on any any ideas? Anyone? Do you want to do you want to phone one of the audience? They don't look. I'll be I'm asking with you. them all. I'm not just phoning one. I'm asking <laughs> them all. <laughs> maritime. That's that's the feeling I get because you get in terms of the. Okay. The HAR is what we call it in Edinburgh, where where you know when it's basically this the cold front comes in, you get the, the kind of misty t- stuff. That gentleman so think- there
0: with the umbrella, he looks very trustworthy as well, doesn't he? Very,
1: yeah? Oh yes, so yes. Does that sound reasonable <laughs> maritime? What was it? There's something uh, that sound- a temperate maritime. Tem- temperate maritime. Is that your final oh, answer to Christopher oh, I'm gonna ask you, is that is that what you think? Yeah. yeah it's got the
0: it. correct answer. Here we go, fantastic stuff. We don't need to add in the... Normally, we add in fake applause, but well done, everybody. Uh, <laughs> great stuff. Right, so 50% correct now. That's all right. Move yeah. on to page number two. Uh, it's. <laughs> this is, is... this going for
1: long? Uh, so yeah, two questions, more, questions, two mate, more questions, mate. Two more, okay. more questions. Uh, what time you got to get back? Um, um, about an, half an hour ago. Okay, so sorry about this. Right, you. okay. It's right. me. I'm, I'd stay here all night. I just feel sorry for some
0: of the people I've here. I've been laughing um, at me having questions here, but it is... Well, well... We'll see. Question three. Which branch of Greggs, the Baker, is nearest to Murrayfield Stadium? Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I put in Greggs Edinburgh. There's 22 of them. 22 branches of Greggs. Uh. Any uh, Greggs fans in here? There's only two. <laughs> <laughs> both, both work at Sigma. There we go. Uh, right. Okay. okay. So this will test your knowledge on roads. Yeah. Okay. okay. So which one is nearest to the Murrayfield Stadium? Is it A, Greg's at 224 Georgie Road. Gorgie, B. Gorgie Road. Gorgie Road. Yeah. Gorgie Road. Georgie. Gorgie Road. So, so Georgie Road. Gorgie, Gorgie Road.
1: near Hearts. Play it in Tyne Castle. That's not. That's, Gorgie is the kind of hard ah. side of things. Anyway. Okay. Continue. No, we're so. learning a little bit about yeah.
0: Edinburgh, aren't we? And the environs. Mm. Uh, B. Greg's at 17 West Maitland Street. West Maitland Street. Okay. So you're getting yeah. your geography, you're getting yourself yeah. sussed there. Okay. Okay. 74 Stanhouse Place. Mm-hmm. Or Greg's
1: at 198 Brunsfield Place. It's definitely not Brunsfield. I think it's, I think it's Gorgie. That's probably the closest to Murrayfield. A. Hey, what do you reckon? What do you think, folks? Yeah.
0: It's correct. Absolutely sensational <laughs> skills. That's why he's a six-time gold medalist. Just it's a quick one. Getting quite Just a quick, just a quick one. I was chat- again chatting about it, with, uh, doing my prep phase earlier on mm-hmm. when I was pre- prepping for this. Prep, face or uh, prep, prep phase, or phase? I thought it was your prep phase. Um, Sorry. I noticed you're, you're highly decorated Olympian. Six golds, one silver. That's it.
1: Are you disappointed you never won a bronze? <laughs> it would have been nice to, to finish the set, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, I think. That would have meant, I guess, either doing an additional event to get that bronze, or downgrading one of the golds to get a bronze, which you probably wouldn't want to no. do, would you? So it's a silly. Question, in an ideal it, world, it? but, but it'd just been
0: nice to have yeah. the set. I've got,
1: it? I've got some world bronzes. Yeah. Not sure. Yeah, how many? Um, it's think, quite a lot that we I think we've got eleven bronze.
0: golds in the worlds.
1: 11, eleven golds in the worlds, yeah. You kind of don't count the golds and the silvers and the bronzes at the worlds because it's like it's not as well. I would. Well. <laughs> well. <laughs>
0: I I did, do you know that sounds? Yeah, that sounds
1: very. <laughs> that sounds very arrogant. That's God, not I true at all. Me seventh. The, the That's first, basically a gold for me. The first silver. Well, I remember your seventh in, in Bogota in '95. That was amazing. See how I tied am- that up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was genuinely at that stage to be mixing with the top pros in the world, and you were an amateur at that time. Technically an amateur. Yeah, te- yeah technically. Yeah, technically. Um, but yeah, anyway, silvers are still great. I, my they first are. silver, my first world medal was '99 in Berlin. Got a silver medal, and that was. I was absolutely negative. overjoyed. That was, I can still remember when we found out we'd made the final. So you've got the qualifying, then the, the first round, and then the semi-final, and then the final. After the semis, um, it was dependent on the Germans at the time, and they'd put a protest in because the Polish team had crashed in front of them and it had made them do a slight detour. And the protest had been um, you know, ignored or, or declined. So it meant we were in the final against the French and we were guaranteed a world medal. And it was just, we were jumping around in the track well, centres, they were know, few and far between in those oh, days. Oh, well, then, it was the they? first. It was the first British medal in sprint events since like nineteen seventy-two. Jeez, they got a medal in tandem, sprint tandem. So, and before then, it was Reg Harris, you yeah. know, back in the fifties. So it was, it was massive, and it was, yeah. I'll, so I go back on that. I'm not, yeah. Gold medals are great, but it, it's, it's all relative to where you are. And it's your the expectations significance of that same. time, was yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely.
0: And look what it, what, look what it was the starting point of yeah. it mean, as yeah. well. Well, bigger than that, it's question four. <laughs> is this right. a quick fire round, just a uh, check? Is no, it's not. No, this I'll is the final it. question. You'll I'll be it. relieved. I think <laughs> the rest of the audience have so only seen. Uh, we'll have to wake up soon. I've only Can seen guys. a dozen or so people nod off. Right, <laughs> right, okay. Uh, Extending a little bit further afield, um, again because of the relatively small information available on Wikipedia, I did a bit of a deep dive on Edinburgh. Okay, what is the oldest pub in Edinburgh? Now, you get a bonus point if you can do it without the multiple choice, because you pointed at me yes, really. Yes, Like, you, you've got I this somewhere. I think it's somewhere. the one up
1: on the Royal Mail. Um, there's one up. Now The reason I think I know this is because it got a mention in, uh, was it John Niven's book I was reading recently? Go on, give me the. I, I, get, yeah. I think you'll get it if you, okay. if you know that I, my think, I think I know it. but So,
0: A, The White Heart, 1516. Um, you don't give me the year though, because I'll give it away. That was a test. Come on. I just blown one of the questions. <laughs> so, best of three <laughs> the White Horse, not going to give you the date, the Sheep Head, Sheepseed, the Sheepseed Inn, or the Ye Old Golf Tavern. So, White Horse, Sheep Heed, Oh, it could be the White Hart. I've told you the date, but I'm you not did. giving the yeah, other yeah. ones. So the so, White, so Ho- it's quite White Hart, White Horse,
1: uh, the Sheep's Head, Sheep's Head, or oh, the, the the old, ye old golf tavern. I think it's the Sheep's Heed. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's the one that's ringing Is the that bell. Your phone a
0: friend. The lady at the I've back got my, from, from my Edinburgh.
1: Fellow Edinburghers here, who are saying. Is that your final answer? Well, it's our final answer. I'll, I'll <laughs> spread the blame. Correct, go. Seventy-five hey! percent. There we go. Chris, Doug, well done. Thanks very much. Well, that was a quiz.
0: Well, so 75%, it's not quite 100%. What have I won? You've won the honour of okay. getting 75% in the quiz. Fair enough. Another round of applause, please, for Sir Chris Hoy. Thank you. And that leads us nicely on to the uh, the final segment um, of these proceedings. And that's just throwing it op- open to the audience. So if anybody's got a question, 10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes yeah, or so. Yeah, of course. Just to ask Chris, it's not very often you get an audience uh, with... Such a lovely bloke, to be honest with you, let, alone, let alone the medals Aww. and all the other malarkey and the lemons and writing books and, and going on, who wants to be a millionaire? <laughs> uh, but just, I'm sure there must be some burning questions or just something you'd like to ask Chris, so stick your hand up. Or um, from Matt, because Matt's, you know, you've got interesting stuff to chat about or, as well. Or, or to me. Or um, we can have some quiet time. Or we can just sit and just reflect on what a magnificent yeah. score that was. Uh, <laughs> afterwards as well, by the way, uh, get get your phones fully charged. There'll be an opportunity to take a photo uh, of Chris, if you so wish, um, and there's some, a little announcement at the end as well. So, stick your hands in the air for a couple of questions. So, well, gentlemen in, in the white shirt at the back. You might have to shout to project your voice, sir. Oh, we've got a mini microphone. Look at that. Technology. Evening. Oh. Hello. Evening. All. Chris, you mentioned uh, something about the gloves earlier on track.
1: So I've never ridden a track. So road gloves are made of synthetic material. What do you use on the track? That's quite a technical and interesting question. Um, as a, so I, the, the gloves that I used were Kangaroo Leather. There was a company that made them sp- specifically from Kangaroo Leather. They were, I think, an Australian company that did all kinds of like Aussie rules gloves for catching the ball when the conditions were a bit damp. Um, and they were just, I used to use golf gloves. Uh, so for doing the start in, uh, as a sprinter, it's all about the grip on the bars and you you know you either use chalk and no gloves at all or you would use um some leather gloves but you use the leather gloves when you're in an event where you could crash because if you if it was all about the grip you just go for chalk um save a bit of weight and and you know less less complication as well but yeah it's a kangaroo leather gloves full finger um and yeah, thankfully I didn't crash that much over the years. Uh, there was ones the ones we have in in the Kirin racing in Japan, you have these carbon fiber kind of knuckles on them because you there's some big crashes out there. What, contrary to a lot of the opinions about Japanese Kirin, it's not for punching with. It was just for protection that if you did crash then you would stop your knuckles getting ridden over or or sort of damaged. But um yeah, in in Japan they go for the full body armor as well and the big motorcycle helmets and you're properly protected but yeah, tougher, yeah. But for the, the endurance guys in the track, they use like road gloves, the sort of the track mitts style things, so. Cheers. Gentlemen in the, in the red cagoule. Just hold on
0: for the pod mic, mate, so you would <laughs> be fully podded, so we we'd have to Very get right. Um, right. somebody to do a voiceover at great expense.
1: <laughs> Hi, chaps. Um, I watched the uh, program you did about Le Mans and mm. your training for it and found it fascinating. Mm. But I didn't realise that you had a passion for it pre that. Was there a fine line when you were younger between cycling and four wheels? No. I mean, I was a fan of motorsport, and I was a massive um, fan of Colin McRae. Um, he was the Scottish Rally World Champion in 1995. Tragically, um, he died in a helicopter accident in 2007, but it was because of Colin. So Colin was my hero, and I, I you know, had the PlayStation Colin McRae game, you know, and and just because of the, his sheer commitment, his style, and his the effort that he put in to every single stage, like he was known as Colin McCrash because he would either win it or bin it. You know, he'd if in doubt, flat out. That was his mantra. So it, it drew you know these this massive fan base. People loved watching Colin drive. And yes, I was a fan of Colin's. Never thought I'd get the chance. It was never like cycling or motorsport. It was only ever cycling in terms of my own personal competition because motorsport seemed a really difficult thing to get into, very expensive, quite, yeah, quite niche um, in terms of competing. And it was at the end of 2012, so I'd finished, I'd finished my season, and the BBC came and got in touch and said, we're doing this um, documentary series called Racing Legends, one episode on Jackie Stewart, one on Sterling Moss, and one on Colin McRae. And obviously, at that point, Sterling and Jackie Still around so they were there to tell their own story and they had someone else to present it but they were there for it but for colin sadly he wasn't around so i did this documentary and i went to meet jimmy and margaret and the rest of the family and got to drive colin's cars and i went to we sort of reenacted the final stage of rally gb where he won the world rally title in 1995 i got his co-driver Derek winger to sit next to me he's a brave man as you can attest matt and then um, we drove the final stage at Sweet Lamb in, in Wales and in, in Colin's car. So it was an absolute, you know, it was a dream of mine. And, and it was off the back of filming that documentary. Somebody said, we've got this race series next year. We've got a seat in a car. We can get you some tuition if you fancy giving it a go. So that was, that was the moment I got the opportunity. But yeah, I just I was so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. So I've got a lot to thank Colin for. Cracking question. Um, Gentlemen, yeah inventor this is alpha. alistair darwood yeah alistair, ladies and yeah. gentlemen chris you've you got to tell us you told us about the 30 second hill sprints what was your peak power for peak 30 power. seconds oh yeah for 30 seconds that's i i'm not actually sure um peak power was a, it was just a shade over 2500 watts sorry 2,500? yeah so so, so that, that's that's the spike of power so when you do it <laughs> when you do a, a but the torque so your power, you can't maintain that for more than about a second and a half. So it spikes, and then it starts to tail off very quickly. So for, yeah, you, basically, 2,500 watts would be a sort of a... Anything over 2,000 watts is is sort of sprint territory. But you the, the power only comes in a very specific band of cadence. Average for, for a minute, well, for a minute, I knew, because we used to do, for a kilo, was a minute exactly, pretty much. Um, and the think the... Thing, the we never had the power cranks on for the Olympics. You'd always take them off. The bike would be at its lightest, at its most sort of simplified. Nothing, nothing to go wrong. But you had SRM cranks on for every World Cup and World Champs. So the highest average power for a minute that I had was 1,190 watts. Um, but, that's, but that's very that's, You could get a higher average Sorry. for a minute. If you were on a turbo and you, you sat at 1,200 watts and held it there, because that's the most efficient way to do it. But in a kilo, you've got to commit so hard at the start, it's very much front-loaded, the, the, the kind of power trace. So you go off to get that momentum going, to get up to speed. So you're doing well over 2,000 watts at the start. And then it starts to drop and drop and drop and drop and drop. And by the end, some of the power traces you see of the sprinters riding a kilo, they could be down to under under 300 watts at the end. They've hit a peak of over 2,000, and within a minute, they're down to under 300 or 200 watts. So that fatigue index, that rate of fatigue, is what defines you as a kilowatt If you can change that gradient just a fraction, that's all those 30-second intervals. That's what they do. They, they kind of stop that rate of... You can't stop the decline, but you can minimize the rate of decline. And that's what all those horrible, horrible intervals were for, to try and buffer the lactate, become used to um, tolerating it, and yeah, yeah, and you've got to commit. And that's the thing about the kilo. It's a wonderful event because it's, the, it's against the clock, but it really it's a race against your mind. It's about committing and going for it. And you see the guys that just get it slightly wrong and they absolutely blow, blow their doors off. They, they die a thousand deaths in the last lap. They lose a second in the last lap and they're out. Or they don't commit enough and they never reach that peak speed and they miss out because of that. You've got to get that sweet spot of full commit or commitment, but not over committing.
0: I'd, I'd never heard the the numbers. Really? Being constructed in the kilo. That honestly, yeah. I was left like, like slack jawed. Like incredible, <laughs> absolutely incredible.
1: But interesting. It's it's not, and it's not like going well. If you can do that wattage, then you'll be a world champion. It's cycling is really interesting because it's not road cycling is power to weight. Obviously, that's a yeah. massive part of it. Track cycling, it's really power to frontal area. So it's about being able to produce that power. You could get a hundred and ten kilo rugby player in that could do two and a half thousand watts. But because he's got such massive shoulders, he's a massive unit, and he's got a lot of weight to get going off the start line, he will never get close to a one-minute kilo. So it's that, that sweet spot. You look at look at the podium from the Kirin at the Olympics, you've got, or even at the Track Champions League, you've got the guy Yakovlev, who was a former Russian rider. He's now riding for Israel. He's six foot, I think six foot four, six foot five. Absolute giant. He's nearly two meters tall. Bloody hell. You've got Azizul Awang, from Malaysia, who weighs, I think, 67 kilos, and he's about five foot six. And then you've got Harry Lovreson, who's the kind of ideal shape. He's like six foot one, 91 kilos, and looks like he's made for track sprinting. But they're all world level athletes, but because, you know, Yakovlev can kick out 2,600, 2,700 watts, but he weighs, he's, he's, you know, nearly two meters tall. So his frontal area is massive, but he's got more power, whereas azizul has got very small power output, relatively speaking, but he's tiny and aero. So it's not. There's not an ideal shape, for or size for track cycling. It's it's about your power to weight. So if you can make yourself sorry, power to frontal area. Yeah. If you can make yourself nice and aero and efficient, then you know, then you get Ian, the, the power to match it. Interesting stuff. Another question at the back from Ian. Yeah. Some people may have uh, Sir Chris Hoy as their cycling hero, but who is I your asked cycling him to say hero? I this. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Who is your cycling hero? Chris? Who's my cycling hero? Yeah. Graham O'Bree. Um, hopefully, some of you have heard of Graham here. I don't know if any of you have. So, Graham O'Bree, for those of you who haven't heard of Graham O'Bree, um, an absolute legend. You've got to go and check the film out, The Flying Scotsman. Um, it's, a, it's a really amazing film about his life. It's not too Hollywoodized. It's quite true. It's quite um, honest in terms of the, the real story. Um, and yeah, long story short, he was living pretty much in the breadline in Irvine, in Scotland, no coaches, no team around him. He had a brilliant brain. He has a brilliant brain, um, ideas, and he looked at a problem. He always looked at a problem from a different perspective to anybody else. And he also had an amazing physical ability. And again, the ability to push himself to some pretty dark places and, and push himself as hard as anybody, anyone I've ever seen. And long story short, famously built his own bike, Literally built his own bike with his own two hands, some bits of scrap metal, bearings from an old washing machine. And he came up with a different riding position. So he looked at skiers and thought, well, they're traveling at 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, whatever, way faster than we are. So aerodynamics are vital for them. So I'm going to copy a a skier's position. He got the tuck arm position and he made a a high handlebar with narrow narrow grips and rode in this tuck arm position. And he went out and he won the national championships in 1993 at, at Leicester which got his ticket onto the British team to go to the world championships, turned up at the Worlds, and in warming up, riding round, all the teams are sort of looking at this strange-looking bike, laughing at this guy from Scotland, going, what's what's he doing? First round of qualifying, he got up and he was qualified fastest and broke the world record. And then they weren't laughing. Then they were like, who is this guy? This is incredible. And he won the Worlds, became world champion, beat Chris Boardman, who was Olympic champion at that point. the UCI didn't like this this riding position. They thought this doesn't look like a traditional cycling position, so they banned the position. He went away and he thought about it, and he came back with another even more efficient position. <laughs> That's Superman, wasn't the it? The Superman yeah. position. Yeah. So he had his arms straight in front of him, <laughs> and went out. Went to Bogota, the Worlds that you went to in '95, and he made the final against Golinelli, who was the Italian superhero who had a, you know, wind tunnel testing the Pinarello monocoque bike you know the best skin suits the best equipment in the world and it was one of the best he will be on youtube one of the best finals wasn't sort of connelly on the superman position as well yeah he'd adopted the yeah. superman position so as everybody well, yeah. realized hang on we're not going to laugh quick. at this yeah. guy we're going to copy him because he's got some great ideas chris Borman copied his position yep. everyone did so they're in the same riding position but graham was on his hand welded you know scrap metal fight, fight. Old old yeah. Colin faithful yeah connelly was on this you know, as I say, Pinarello, incredible looking thing, monocoque design, aerodynamically designed in the wind tunnel. And it was one of the best up until, I think, Glasgow, when it was um, Ghana against uh, Dan Bigham, where yep. it was that incredible pursuit final. It was the best final I'd seen up until that point. It, I think the lead changed hands nine times. It was never more than a tenth of a second that difference. never really two. happens, is it? Oh, no, no. And yeah. pursuits can, no, no offence to pursuitors, but sometimes it can be a bit dull when one rider just goes off, gets a two or three second gap. And it's never in doubt. But this final was unbelievable. And yeah, I remember watching it on Eurosport, jumping up and down, shouting at the telly. And he won it by, you know, a few tenths of a second at the end of it. Or he talked about it in his book. And, and I was I was a roommate of Graham's in 1997 in Perth at the World Championships. His last Worlds. It was my second Worlds. The young kid with the kind of the you know the hero. And I must have bored him senseless, asking him questions nonstop. Graham, what about that race? The- and <laughs> tell me about this time. But he was he was endless amounts of patience and um yeah it was it was just you know an incredible guy a, a genius in terms of the way he thought about things, and the way that he committed again, I think a lot of the inspiration I took for the way I trained on the bike was from Graham in terms of every day counted every session, every effort of every session counted do it or don't do it, don't do it half heartedly and I watched him training, and I saw how deep he went every day, and I thought, geez, that's that, is, that that's stretched the spectrum for me for what you have to do to be the best. So everybody focuses on the bearings and the washing machine and this amazing bike. For me, it was about his, his approach to how, how committed he was in training. And yeah, yeah amazing guy.
0: I, I mean, I'd, we were in the same hotel in 95 with him. Um, and I remember seeing, having done my, my road ride in the morning and he'd come out into this little courtyard in Columbia in this little hotel and get on a turbo with Old, old Faithful. And back then, I think I'm right in saying the pro pursuit was still 5,000 meters, wasn't it? Not four. And then it went down. So amateurs was 4,000. Pros was five, weirdly. That changed late 90s, yeah. didn't it? Anyway, he'd just jump on Old Faithful and do, and do a five-minute like five effort and then jump off. But, I mean, limp off. <laughs> then he would do 20 minutes lying on his bed, come back. I'd still be there reading a book. He'd do another five minutes. And that was his training. He said, well, why would I want to do 20 minutes when... So he basically managed somehow in his own little way, you know, and he, he was such an innovator and such a disruptor that in, in his own way, he just, he purified that sport and he just looked, well, it's just four or five minutes, four and a half, whatever it was, that's all I need to train. And that's all he did. And, and that's why for that brief period of time, he changed the hour record race, yeah, yeah. he changed the way that we look at aerodynamics. and. Above all that, he's a a lovely bloke, lovely a troubled bloke. soul, but very troubled, a, a yeah. lovely, lovely bloke. You and know, it, soul, and yeah.
1: it was, it was. I think you're you're absolutely right. Cycling is such a traditional sport, and although it's evolved hugely in the last uh, two decades, it's still very traditional in the way we look at things. But never like it. was, you know, back in the late nineties or mid nineties, it was so traditional, and it's yeah. like, well, Eddie Merckx didn't train this way, or you know, um, Francesco Moser didn't train for the era that way, so. You, you think you're better than them? Why would you, you know, they, that must be the best way to train. But Graham was like, well, I don't want to go out and do two hours zone three or go out and do, yeah. you know, I, I'm, tr- I'm racing for four and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm going to train for, I'm racing for an hour, so I'm going to train for an hour. I'm going to train with the same intensity. Yeah. And he, he, he was an innovator in his, in his approach to technology. He was an innovator in terms of training. And he didn't, he didn't accept the status quo. He always questioned it, even if it meant, well, I'll question it, but actually that is the right way to do it, so I'll stick with it. Um, so he was huge inspiration, still is, amazing guy. If you ever get the chance to hear him talk at events, he randomly turns up at events, small events, this sort of size, and you go there and you can hear a pin drop. Um, not because they're sleeping like, you know.
0: No, he's an amazing orator. Because they're there absolutely, is. He's, yeah. he's
1: absolutely enthralling. He's very and, insane, and, um, Yeah, amazing guy. One last question, um, and it's coming from just at the back there. Hi.
0: Afternoon. Hello. Did you ever feel trapped on the track? Did you ever wish to be lighter or
1: a climber to see more scenes, you know, like the road riders? Um, yeah, well, yeah, no. No is the short answer. I, so as a kid, I did everything. I, I did BMX when I was young. Then I did mountain biking. Then I did road. I raced the Junior Tour of Ireland in 1994. That kind of answered any questions I might have had that whether I was a, <laughs> a potential GC contender. Um So, it's not about the weight. So, you could, you can, we can, you know, we can gain muscle mass, we can lose mass, we can get lighter. It's really about your genetics in terms of I I was born with a certain composition of, we all have a certain composition of fast twitch or slow twitch muscle fibers. You can convert within a degree. If you do lots of endurance exercise, you will convert some of the fast twitch into slow twitch, but you can't create fast twitch muscle fiber types. So, you're always, we can all improve our sprint or our power or our maximal strength, but we're all kind of limited by our genetics. So I knew from a young age that I was good at BMX because I had a good sprint, a good start. Mountain biking for two hours, you know, was a slog and I wasn't so good at that. But I still enjoyed it and I still tried my best and the road was the same. But I think for me, being a sprinter, the track was the pinnacle. For the endurance riders, the track is usually a stepping stone to bigger things. But often, like we're seeing now with Ghana and various riders, Garrett Thomas, Bradley Wiggins, they come back the track later on in their career, having one Tour de France or one You know, um, major events. They still, they still have their heart in the track, and they still appreciate pulling on a rainbow jersey or winning an Olympic gold medal. Um, But for sprinters, it's it is the pinnacle, really. Um, And yes, of course, it'd be. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of the Tour de France? Um, But yeah, you can't complain, can you? You know, (laughs) can't be greedy. Cheers, Chris.
0: Thanks very much, mate. It's been. An absolute pleasure. We've you. done nearly an hour and a half. But no, it's been, it's been great. We could have gone on for a lot longer. Thanks for your question. Thanks for coming. It, it, honestly, this has been really enjoyable, actually. I've had a, I've had a great time. I hope you have too. Thanks for giving your time. Please hang around as well for a bit. But from the, a pod perspective, that's it. Thanks so wow. much indeed. Thanks
1: for having me as your first guest on the first ever live live podcast. Cheers, boss. Thanks very much indeed. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: Thanks
1: for coming. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Cheers.
0: You can probably tell that was a lot of fun. Massive thanks to Chris for joining me on the podcast today and what a great lesson that is to help your kids find their passion. Cheers, Chris. This podcast was recorded by VoxPod and produced by Noel Gaffney on behalf of Hot Chili. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you as ever for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to anybody who would really love to have a velodrome named after them. Perhaps they can take inspiration and advice from someone who has been there and bought the T-shirt, by which I mean, has had a velodrome named after him. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye.